Greetings and salutations, and welcome to This Ends at Prom. A coming-of-age podcast highlighting cinema about or marketed towards teen girls. I'm one of your hosts, BJ Colangelo, and I'm joined by my wife. Harmony Colangelo, a trans woman who grew up watching none of these movies. Is today's movie a queen bee? Or are we killing the teen dream? Get in, loser. We're analyzing the movies people make fun of us for loving. Girl, I wanna be your goddamn idol And I don't wanna have to work twice as hard For the same motherfucking title But I realize That I probably won't be so lucky Hello, prom party. BJ, guess what? What? For me, it was Wednesday. Except this episode's going live on a Thursday. But her name is Wednesday. I know. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to go, it is Wednesday, my dudes. (laughs) (laughs) But then I was like, I also don't know if that reference is going to make any sense to people who don't yearn for vine the way that we do people who are not slightly older and slightly younger you kind of have to be right in the sweet spot on that one yeah for real yeah (laughs) but yes it is if you are listening to this the day it goes live and you live in the united states it's turkey day if you're anywhere else uh congratulations on not celebrating our country's history of genocide yay Yay. this summer camp movie you know gary's vision makes it forever associated with that holiday and not with summer camp. I know, it's such a weird thing. I mean, it did come out in November. It did, it did. It came like, out in November. The day we're recording this is the day it actually came out. Yes, it is the 30th anniversary of Adam's Family Values, a movie that I love, that I know you love, that I assume if you're listening to this, you love as well. God, this movie's so funny. It's so fucking funny. Like, it's so <laughs> fucking well-crafted. It really is. It's a perfect cast. It's just like, uh This movie commits to the bit in ways that other movies need to look towards. Like the bar has been set. Yeah. It's so good. Um, So yes, we are talking about Adam's Family Values, a movie that is not the first in the live action Adam series, but the one that kind of makes Wednesday a centerpiece for the first time Mm -hmm. um, and is also dealing with two different stories of, you know, teen girls because we also have Debbie here and a lot of her actions are rooted in her, you know, unresolved childhood trauma. I mean, she might have always been a psychopath. I mean, that's true. That's true. Something pretty small, something pretty innocuous. Uh, She's a wife made her burn and down a house. psychopath. Yes. <laughs> so, yeah, we're going to be talking about all of that as well as the importance, of course, given the holiday of the big play scene, which has become sort of the definitive moment in this movie. Yeah. In a movie that is filled with just incredible moments. Mm-hmm. So if somehow you have not seen Adam's Family Values, here is your incredibly small synopsis. The Adams family tried to rescue their beloved Uncle Fester from his gold-digging new love, a black widow named Debbie. Debbie! Debbie! I, Joan Cusack, like, she doesn't get to play hot very often. Which is a crime, in my opinion. I think it's because her face and her voice are just not exactly what Hollywood wants. 
But and Hollywood's bogus for that because Joan Cusack can get it. She can, especially in this movie. She got that body, yaddy, yaddy. Oh my god, she's so hot in this movie. Right? Like she's so mean. It's like, no, I'd let you electrocute me. I'd be cool with that. She's absolutely like, like there, there are many spiels she gives about things where it's just like, Debbie, you, you could really healthily funnel your rage and pension for destroying people's lives into a successful career as a professional dom. I know. <laughs> that would be like perfect for her. Are you uh -huh. kidding me? She gets paid to be mean to men. Oh my God. It's like a perfect dream for her. Yeah. Now granted <laughs> she needs to find out limits because she kills people. Yeah. But you know, I'm just saying <laughs> in a different universe, that would have been a better use of her skills. Debbie, have you ever heard of a thing called a safe word? No, I don't <laughs> think she has. So, Harmony, what is your relationship with the Adamses? Dude, it's just, they've always been there. Mm -hmm. The first one comes out in 91. This one comes out in 93. I was born in 91. The Adams Family movies have always been there. These are my Adams families. I love that. Because, like, I, I, I watched a little bit of the Munsters. Didn't watch very much of the classic Adams Family growing up. Mm -hmm. I, quite frankly, was watching Nick at Night, so my stuff was a bit more saccharine. Mm -hmm. A lot more Gilligan's Island and Brady Bunch. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, no, I love the Addams Family movies. And I think it's safe to say that anybody who watches these movies considers this to be the far superior one. I think so, too. Yeah. Because, like, the character work, the acting, the bits of the first one are so good, but the plot is not. <laughs> the Uncle Fester plot of the first movie is sufficient. Mm -hmm. It is a bit bogus. Mm -hmm. This one has an excellent plot. I agree. And it's juggling multiple plots that converge on each other. Like, it's it's so well-crafted for this kind of movie. Yeah, I agree. What about you? I, you, were, you were a creepy kid. I feel like you have a lot of strong <laughs> feelings. Let me guess. Your parents watched the original Adam's Family and were like, you got to check this out. I mean, yes. Uh, Papa Colangelo, who is, he's more of a Munsters man than he is an Adam's. But when- does, does, does your dad have really strong feelings where it's like, we're a Batman household? <laughs> We're, we're a monster's household. We are, uh, he wanted us to be a monster's household, but the allure of Wednesday Adams uh, made it so that we we, we enjoy both in, in the Colangelo household. Because the cre creepy little girl. Yeah. Which and, the monsters did not have. Yeah. So so we'll we'll get to that because that's a whole thing. So yeah, I was really into the Barry Sonnenfeld films, which is the film series we're talking about today. And then that, of course, inspired my dad to be like, hey, let me show you where this all comes from. And so we'd watch old Adams Family on TV land. But I have such an affinity for the character of Wednesday Adams as a creepy kid. As do most people. Correct. Like, I'm not, was, this is not like an individual experience. Like, no. I'm the only one who ever was influenced by Wednesday no, Adams. Th this was a big thing for every Gen X person, especially. Like, I think that was probably a thing prior to these movies. Mm -hmm. um, but we'll get into that with context before, where it's like realistically, the 90s was when it was okay to be. Into, uh, to be a creepy kid. Yeah. And now with like the new Wednesday, it's like, ah, yes, a new generation is getting their creepy girl. Yeah. So I was really, really into these movies. I loved Wednesday Adams. My god brothers growing up used to call me Wednesday. Um, and if I ever like. Oh, sick burn. If I, right. I was like, <laughs> ooh, I'm so hurt by this. But the thing that was really annoying is that if I would like, you know, everyone's in the room, they're all watching sports or something, and I was coming in late, and, you know, I'm coming in from, like, I don't know, theater practice or something, and I look like my normally gothy self, they'd be like, oh, hello, who is that? And then, like, I'd walk in the room, and both of them would go, 
And it's mm-hmm. like, all right, you fucks. Like, mm-hmm. please chill out. But yeah, that became like a thing. And then other people started doing it. Uh, like my parents' friends, like they started calling me Wednesday because of it. They'd be like, oh, Wednesday, how are you doing today? And mm-hmm. it's just like, okay. Um, but I, you know, it didn't bother me because Wednesday Adams fucking rules. So I love her. Um, I also was in college when the Adams Family Musical came out. And that is a show about Wednesday. And she has all of the best numbers. Uh, mm-hmm. Pulled was in my audition repertoire for many years. Now I'm too old and I can't have it. But it's fine. That song rules. Uh-huh. Um, so, yeah, I love Wednesday. I've always loved Wednesday. And this is the movie that really made me fall in love with her as a character because this is her movie. This this is the showcase for her. Mm-hmm. The, the, we are deprioritizing the characters that got more of the spotlight in the last movie. Mm-hmm. And it's like, we love Gomez. We love Morticia. We're going to focus more on Fester and Wednesday. Mm-hmm. Which I think is, I think it's a smart idea, especially for a sequel. But Christina Ricci they did is... the third one, then we would have gotten Pugsley. Well, they did the third one. It was the reunion. Well, but that one's not really it's the It's not really one. the third one, yeah. But... I yeah, I love this movie. I think that Christina Ricci is so phenomenal in this role. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, there was there was some big shoes to fill for Jenna Ortega for the series. And I think now it's cool that there's like every generation has their Wednesday. I think that's really cool. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, we're gonna talk about Christina Ricci and how much I love her. But w- context for this is weird. Because this is not exactly a teen girl movie. It was definitely not marketed as no, a teen girl movie. This is a family film. This is a family film, but it's also a spooky family film. And it's also coming out during a time period where we were not getting a lot of teen stories in general. Yeah. So the early 90s are not a time period we focus on very strongly. I think it's because teen films were seen largely as an 80s fair and nothing was less cool in the early 90s than the 80s. And so you had some, um, as it is Thanksgiving, it's safe to say that uh, our horn of plenty is not plentiful. There <laughs> our cornucopia are, is bare. Yes, there are, uh, har- harvest is weak this year. Um, <laughs> it is not unfair to say that there are limited options. However, what we are getting are largely focused on boys. Boys in the hood, Dazed and Confused, uh, Bill and Ted's bogus journey. Like, there's options. They're not for girls. Mm-hmm. And at the same time, what is going on is you have the uh, the, the 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 rising success of Tim Burton. Mm-hmm. You had teen girl movies in the way of Beetlejuice mm-hmm. in the eighties, and now Edward Scissorhands, which you know about a boy, but there's a lot of emphasis on girls. It's a romance. It's we've covered the episode exactly. Yeah. People know how we feel about it, and Tim Burton. Mm-hmm. But as a result, something that is fun to focus on for this period is that. For the sake of our show, we mostly do spooky movies. Mm-hmm. So, uh, 1991, the original Adams Family movie comes out. It makes almost 200 million dollars at the box office alone. It makes ridiculous movie money in the home rental market. Mm-hmm. They greenlight the sequel. It comes out in 1993. Mm-hmm. In that time, Buffy came out the year before and the did Buffy the movie. Buffy the movie, which was you know a modest success. Mm-hmm. And then Hocus Pocus comes out this same year and mm-hmm. is a, a modest success. Mm-hmm. All of these would go on to have much bigger cult followings later. Mm-hmm. Adam's Family Value comes out in November of 1993, and it makes money. Mm-hmm. It does not make as much money. Probably like, not. Like I feel like they push this in November because of the big scene at the end, but this it just feels like... I think people were still like... 
you only watch these movies during October. People were not as comfortable watching spooky stuff year round the way they are now. Well, it's like how Hocus Pocus was released in like July. Which is the dumbest decision Disney has ever made. That's a lie. They've made way worse decisions, but that's a pretty big one. Yeah. So I think there's that. Um, I also think that when it comes to watching like spooky related stuff, by the time you get to November, uh, especially now, people are a lot, of, a lot of people are like, I'm a little tired. I need They're a break. Burnout, yeah. Um, so there's that. But from what I was reading, one of the biggest contributing factors to this movie was see was that the marketing made it seem redundant because it didn't emphasize the Fester storyline or the differences between the first movie and this one. Mm-hmm. You know, the uh, the shift of focus mm-hmm. and it made a lot of people feel like they weren't getting their proper value. They were just getting more of the same. Gotcha. That makes sense. Now, what I think is especially fun to think about is the Harmony Hut in this, not just because it's my name. <laughs> I definitely had somebody yesterday who was like, what's your name? I go, Harmony. And they go, oh, I have your name on my bedroom wall. And I was like, yeah. And they're like, yeah, just letters that I found at like thrift stores and stuff over the year. And it's just what I'm trying to achieve. I'm like, okay. <laughs> I just, uh, all right. I'm going to try not to be a dick about this, but no. <laughs> but the Harmony Hut, their show, the, the, the line is, but it's Disney. Mm-hmm. This is the era of the Disney Renaissance. Mm-hmm. Disney is at the top of their game. Not necessarily like how they are now where they've taken over the world, but in terms of like being a lovable company that we all are appreciative of. Oh, yeah, we're in the Disney com- Renaissance era. Right are at now. a like critical high. Like there's serious conversations that Disney is like, Disney might actually win Best Picture during this era. Yeah, that was like a genuine threat is they thought that Beauty and the Beast was going to win Best Picture. And like, then they try to have Pocahontas be like, this is going to be our one. Yeah. Which, <laughs> but <laughs> mistake. It was the Lion King. Surprise. Yeah. But when you look at that, it's so interesting to look at these like spooky movies like Hocus Pocus is like fairly raunchy for a Disney movie. But then you see just how adult this movie is. Like there's a joke about Fester uh, getting jacked off by Thing at night. Yeah. The first thing that Wednesday says in this movie is our parents are having a baby too. They had sex. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like that's the first thing she says in this movie. This movie is m- macabre as it should be, but it's mm-hmm. also like provocative. It's hella horny. <laughs> in a way that's like really friendly for all ages. Mm-hmm. Cause like they're, they're classy about it. So a lot of this stuff's going to go over the heads of small children. Yeah. But the parents are going to go, Oh, uh-huh. <laughs> so what I love about these particular movies during this era is you have a genuine, like, stark contrast to Disney. Mm-hmm. Disney's, like, at their peak power. Mm-hmm. And yet you have something that is so different. Because, like, Illumination, DreamWorks, like, they're making stuff. There's alternatives to Disney on a large scale. But they share a lot of similar DNA. They're not that different. Right. Versus this, which is radically different. Disney would never release this, even during their more experimental periods. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is so cool that you finally have something that like spooky kids can go, that's for me. And you'll see it more once like Nightmare Before Christmas picks up steam throughout the rest of the decade. Mm-hmm. But like spooky kids can go, I'm I'm not into Annie. I don't like the sound of music. That's what I want. 
Definitely. The 90s were never a better time for horror kids and spooky kids. Definitely. And so we've talked about this, I think, like slightly across, you know, multiple episodes. But I think this is a great episode to really have this conversation. And I want to preface this by saying this is not like, ooh, we just had it better than everyone else. Like in being those kind of 90s kids. No, but like in terms of having genuinely good like preteen horror fare. The 90s is the best decade for it. It absolutely is. Like, it's not even a question because in the 70s and 80s, there was stuff that was for kids that had, like, spooky bends to it. And it was like, oh, that was, like, a really traumatic scene in this movie or that was a really weird thing to put in, you know, The Last Unicorn that made this really traumatizing. Mm -hmm. Whereas in the 90s, it was straight up, like, this is horror for children. Your goosebumps, your Are You Afraid of the Dark, your eerie Indianas, you're so weird. I mean, the, the, like, the reason that you look at the monsters of the Adams family in their era and people calling you Wednesday is because it's like, oh, you're the outlier. Mm -hmm. Versus in the 90s where it's like, you have television, you have books, you have movies, you have all of these things that are specifically geared towards a young audience and are horror. Yes, and what's ironic is I was actually talking about this on Twitter today, like the day that we were recording this, mm -hmm. where I genuinely believe that there is a direct correlation between increased levels of depression and anxiety in children at like younger ages and the lack of easily accessible age appropriate horror content for for kids. And mm -hmm. the reason being is because when you are watching a horror movie or a horror TV show or something that is dealing with the macabre, dealing with something spooky, this is teaching you how to process what are quote unquote negative emotions, but doing so in a safe distance because it's fiction mm -hmm. and being able to do so without it having to incorporate your real life issues. The example that I said is, you know, if your introduction to mortality is a horror movie, something that is a little bit fantastical, but allows you to process this idea of loss, this idea of something going away. I think we talked about this a little bit on our Casper episode as well. Mm -hmm. But if that is your first introduction to death, that allows you to process the concepts of death without having to include real life emotion. If your first introduction to death is like someone in your life or a beloved pet dying, that is way harder to process. You're not prepared for that. Oh, so yeah. horror helps kind of like grease the gears a little bit for you. I mean, maybe I'm just getting a little big brain and trying to oversimplify things, but I almost feel like. It's, it's 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 achieving a similar sort of function as like Christianity where it's like, no, grandma's not dead. Your goldfish isn't dead. They're in heaven. And they go, oh, that's not scary. They're not just like lost to the void forever. But now current people are significantly less religious than they've ever been. Or mm -hmm. at the very least, they're in a general concept of spirituality that is kind of vague and far more personal. But without the concept of like the upbringing of horror to make processing death easier and without like you know, the more suburban, the, the the very summer camp, Camp Chippewa version of like being like everything, sunshine and rainbows, kum, kumbaya. Mm -hmm. Without either of those things, there's a little bit of a void in terms of processing things or avoiding yeah. them. Yeah. Then that's the thing is it's a lot of avoidance of like people are trying to protect their kids or trying to protect people from, you know, the, the dangers of the world or oh, I don't want them to grow up too fast or whatever reasoning that you have. And then what ends up happening is then when they do face the inevitable, which is something bad happening in just some way, shape or form, bad things or, or even if it's just like a scary image on a bus stop advertisement or what have you, if you know, they're, Momo. 
Yeah, Momo, whatever you want to do. Like, if you're not prepared for those sorts of things, then it becomes overwhelming to try to process because you have no skills for it. Mm -hmm. And so having something like The Addams Family, which is such a fun, friendly family movie, but at the same time has a severed hand running around, has people talking about electrocution and homicide and what have you. There's a, there's several jokes about children killing themselves in this. There are several. They go to camp and Pugsley's like, I'm just going to hang myself, I guess. There are so <laughs> many jokes about them trying to kill Pubert. Like, yep. It's an incredibly dark thing, but you can now open up that conversation with your kids to be like, here's what they're talking about. Here's why. Here's what this means. Like... That, these are good things. This is very, good very school, good This things. is a good skill set to develop. Yeah, and I know that it's hard because you don't want your kids to know that these things exist because you want to protect them from that. But, like, it's inevitable. Mm -hmm. And it's better to prepare, for, like, help prepare them than to then suddenly they get blindsided when somebody fucking dies. Like, that yeah. sucks. I mean, we still have Adam's Family. Obviously, this is the Wednesday show, which I didn't watch. And also the animated one, which I also didn't watch. But I heard it was just kind of okay. Yeah, the animated one I think is fine, but also there's something that's lost when it's an animation because your brain knows that this is animation, it's not real. Yeah. And the Wednesday series is for teenagers. Gotcha. So again, we're like losing our preteens, <laughs> which like that's what kills me is like preteen is when you're finally old enough to really start understanding this sort of stuff. And there is just a void right now. And it's it's really disheartening. And I'm I'm worried about the future. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. So before we dive in completely, it is time for everyone's favorite part of the show. Happy November, prom party. We have a very uh, good month for you over on the Patreon this month. And by that, I mean we're doing... Good Burger and Goodwill Hunting over on the Sadie Hawkins dance. It wasn't supposed to plan out that way, but I was like, you know what? Let's just fucking rock it. Let's go. <laughs> For our musical milestone mini episode, um, apparently Gucci Gucci by Cray Sean just went platinum and BJ lost her mind about it because she's a, a very unique apologist for that song. So we're going to dive into Cray Sean and kind of trashy white girl rap a la Kesha's TikTok. And things of that ilk. We only have two more months left of My So-Called Life before we are finishing up there. So we're cruising on with that. In addition to all of our awesome, good bonus episodes that you're going to get over there, the Patreon will also have the monthly playlist, BJ's wellness newsletter, and of course, the suggestion box so that you can go ahead and just throw some of your favorite movies you would like to us to discuss out there. In addition to all of the things that we have in the back catalog that you can explore at your leisure. As always, if you're not able to support this month, we totally understand. Um, the world's in, in, a, in a state right now, so like we're not holding it against anybody. But if you have the means and there's not anybody else you haven't bothered about it yet, then recommend us to any like friends or family or whoever you think might like what we do. And go ahead and leave us a review. I just learned this month that apparently you can leave comments on Spotify, and I had a very fun time going through and reading a seven or eight months worth of those. <laughs> With all of that said, back to the movie. All righty. So let's talk about Our Girl Wednesday. How do you feel about Wednesday and, in particular, her 
representation in this movie. I mean, this is the best Wednesday, right? There's no question. Like, no shade to anybody else like, who's ever played Wednesday. Obviously, we're biased. This is the Wednesday <sighs> of our generation, but this is the best Wednesday, right? Christina Ricci's so good. They give she's her so they, good. they showcase her. <laughs> they give her such good writing. Like, she's spectacular. She's like, there is something so impressive about how she is able to play this like very deadpan, very sardonic sort of humor at this age mm -hmm. because this is a difficult emotion for kids because there's so many layers to the sarcasm to everything she says. I mean, speaking of layers, when she like fakes that smile where she's like, I want to be chipper, mm -hmm. she goes through every human emotion on her way to presenting a horrifying smile. It's like, her version of that uh, that laughing scene that you love from Bottoms. Yes, they're it not, really they're is. They're not that far off, but it's like you were displaying so many things <laughs> with no dialogue and just your face, and it's kind of ridiculous. Yeah, this is why Christina Ricci's the best. Um, there's an article from the Mary Sue where they talk about how Adam's Family Values is the best Adam's movie, and they have an entire section just dedicated to Wednesday. Mm. It says, Wednesday, played flawlessly by Christina Ricci, asserts herself as the eldest child of the family, a notable change from the original show and comic where Pugsley was meant to be older, convincing her brother that they need to return their family to being a two-child household. When their attempts at fratricide fail, the kids are sent to a summer camp and must deal with peppy upper-class children and the ridiculous counselors. Instead of breaking under their indoctrination, Wednesday pretends to follow their lead, only to use the final stage play as a chance to call out the racism of the camp and lead the underprivileged camp kids in a rebellion. Though this was technically a subplot, the film was arguably the first to make Wednesday the main character of the Addams Family franchise. Every adaptation from the musical to the animated movies to the Netflix show since have solidified her as the main character of the family. Looking back on this film, it is so clear that Christina Ricci walked so Jenna Ortega could run. Mm -hmm. And I agree with that completely. Mm -hmm. Wednesday has always been the most interesting member of the family to me because, like, I understand Gomez and Marticia, and yes, they are absolutely couple goals. Well, it, for the, sure. They're the best. It's just easier to set a sitcom around two adults like that. Exactly. Especially during their era. Where there is something so complex about Wednesday because especially at this age, and they constantly make jokes about it, where, you know, you have the, you know, very famous line of, you know, she's, you know, what's on her mind is the same as anyone her age. What is that? Boys, homicide. Mm -hmm. Like, she is the prototype of, like, hashtag not like most girls. Oh, my God. She's just like me. But nothing about her, because like, in order to be a hashtag not like most girl, there also has to be a sense of, like, self-awareness of, like, I'm doing You're this. actively doing something yeah. to be the opposite of something right. versus... This is her normal? Yes, this is her normal. She just is this way. She's not trying. She's not putting on airs. This is just who she is, died in the wooled weirdo. Mm -hmm. And that is very powerful. Yeah. And speaking of like the summer camp, like apparently you pay 20 grand to go to that summer camp, which is just like makes me want to go. Ugh. Yeah, that's like I want to hurl no. thinking about 90s money where you drop 20 grand to ship your kid off for the summer. Yeah, that's. I, I can't fathom that kind of money. Like no, that, that's absurd. It doesn't seem real to me. Mm -hmm. So what we do, like as, as America, like we have many tropes of like summer camp movies. It happens a lot. And in the case of like most of those, as well as like scouts, there's mm -hmm. a lot of racist imagery we decide to use because that's mm -hmm. just what America thought was a good idea to do at the time. Yeah. I like you're kind of hard pressed to find any movie that has like a summer camp element and either the camp or the bunks or whatever are not named after indigenous tribes. I, I think Little Darlings might be clear, but it's been a sec since we rewatched that one for the show. Heavyweights, 
Nope. It's the only blemish on that otherwise perfect movie. The parent trap, they, you know, they're, they're, she's an Arapaho. Like, mm-hmm. it's just like, okay, great. Love Something that. you have to deal with, like Shelley Long in a headdress and Troop Beverly Hills. I mean, same thing even with Sleepaway Camp, Camp Arawak. Mm-hmm. Like, that's, <laughs> why did we do this, America? Because like, we're going to the woods, so we're not like white people. Oh, God, I know, I we're know. We're like people who live on the land. I know, it's just, it was a rhetorical question that I just needed to erupt I, from my body. Oh, I know. So, <laughs> it, it, it upsets me to, to think about that, but thinking of like summer camp in the 80s versus the 90s, like we turned a hard turn in the 90s where we're like, man, summer camp sucks. I think it's because we became a lot more conscious of how much it cost because in the 80s, people would go to summer camp like pretty commonly. Like that was a very it was common, a very normal thing. It was sure. a very normal thing. At least I think certainly it was, normal in movies. I think it was a little bit more affordable as well. Versus in the 90s, like people stopped going to summer camp because you started doing things like, you know, traveling sports or mm-hmm. like summer activities. So people were going to summer camps less and less, which meant they became more exclusive. And then when things become more exclu- exclusive, they become more expensive. Mm-hmm. So then the only people that were going to summer camps outside of people who were going on like religious like camps, oh, which I, that's I, its own. I got shipped up on a lot of youth retreats. Yeah, that's its own sort of thing. But like genuine summer camps, like they were for the wealthy. And in the 90s, we became a lot more cynical about that sort of thing. So then we started taking the piss out of it a little bit, which is why we get something like this, which is way more Mm self-aware and is like, these are a bunch of entitled waspy rich assholes. Fuck these people. This is the first time that like a whole generation of kids probably learned about how, uh, how unkindly we treated the Native Americans. Uh-huh. Because it's not cer- certainly not a thing we, t- le- we learned in school. Mm-mm. We didn't learn about smallpox blankets in school. Mm-mm. We were just like, oh, yeah, we all shared dinner and we broke bread and they taught us to make corn and everything was great. And Pocahontas didn't die. Oh, right. Like, Pocahontas like, was dead like four years before the date of the quote-unquote first Thanksgiving. Do you think Gary's vision cares about historical accuracy? Disney didn't give a shit about historical accuracy. <laughs> That's where he learned from. <laughs> Even though that's technically later, but like the the sentiment. (laughs) So the stuff that Wednesday is going through in this episode that I find. So the different journeys that Wednesday is going on in this movie are so important for, I especially think for young girls to see, because the first is the, the juxtaposition between her and Amanda, because Amanda is such a prototype of like the poster child for the all American girl. She's mm-hmm. blue eyed. She's blonde. She's she wants rich. to be an actress. Right. And then we get the lines like, I'll be the victim all your life. And it's like, well, what does that mean? Mm-hmm. Huh? I want to think about that. Like, so it's one of the earliest examples that you're going to get of calling out white feminism, which mm-hmm. I fucking love. Um, but then you have this idea of fighting against assimilation because the the issues that they have with Pugsley and Wednesday is that they're weird, is that they're not happy, and they uh, they try to literally brainwash them in the Harmony Hut. It's like oh, yeah. you're going to watch The Sound of Music and Bambi and like. We're gonna we're gonna set you right. Like that's conversion therapy. Like that's fucked. <laughs> obviously, that is something that we focus on them because they're our main characters. But uh, there, there's something to be said about the other kids who uh, who don't get to be pilgrims during Gary's play during his masterpiece. Yes, because I think that there's something that could be said about them going like, ah, oh, yes, 
you're not a lost cause because you're not the fat curl. You're not a, a kid in a wheelchair. You're not Jamal. I, I don't know how to pronounce this. J- Jamal? J- Jamal? Oh, my God. The look on that kid's face, too, when he rolls his eyes like, that kid is so fucking dumb. Yes, because I think that they look at Pugsley and Wednesday and go, "You're uh, aside from being goth weirdos, you could be normal. We can fix you. Mm-hmm. So they, they, they make them a pet project. Well, and they do the same thing with Joel. Uh, David Crumholtz? David Crumholtz, baby David Crumholtz. Which so is so funny because you always call him Bernard the Elf. And now look at you actually using his name. I'm proud of you. Yeah. Um, I'm but- <laughs> trying to distance myself from Tim Allen as much as possible. That's a wise choice for us all. Um, but yeah, we have baby David Crumholtz in here and he is so painfully Jewish and so cute and I love him so much. Mm-hmm. And He's got his horrible parents. His horrible parents. What, what's the line? 20 grand and they make him Mr. Woo Woo? Mm-hmm. Ugh. Like I'm from Cleveland, we have to deal with Chief Wahoo, but like, oh, it's awful. It's, it's horrible. <laughs> Just like, I hate it hearing it. It's so awful. I'm but... so glad Chief Wahoo and Mister Woo Woo are things that are dead and buried. God, seriously. But they do the same thing with Joel because they see his proximity to whiteness, and they're like, oh, maybe we can help you. Because his thing is, they were like, they throw him in the Harmony Hut because he likes to read. He's an indoor kid. Because <laughs> he's which an indoor kid. Becoming an increasing thing in the '90s with the uh, prevalence of video games. Because mm-hmm. now kids can like play things by themselves. Yes. It's it's lonely to go outside and play like just baseball by yourself. Mm-hmm. But you can go home and you can play baseball on your like your Super Nintendo. Then it's not lonely. You're probably not playing baseball. You're probably playing something that's not a sports game. But then it's not sad, or at the very least, no one can see how sad it is. It's that line from Fido that I love where he's throwing the baseball against the garage. goes, honey, don't play ball by yourself. The neighbors will think you're lonely. Yeah. That's exactly <laughs> what my parents were like, though. <laughs> like, that's real. Like, my that's parents really... were, like, so insistent on trying to make me an outdoor kid. And I was like, I don't want to. <laughs> no, I don't want to play tennis. <laughs> it's not my fault that you move next to a tennis court. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. they. But you're totally right, though, because that's exactly what they do is they tokenize all of the kids that they view as lesser than and it's like you're gonna play you're gonna play the Native Americans in this and that's so deeply fucked up and it reminds me so much of you know the Pen15 episode of Posh Spice where they make Maya be Scary Spice because she's not white because she's not white and so it's like well if you're the othered then that's where you're gonna go Um, and so I love that Wednesday then becomes this like radical leader where she's like not only am I going to feign like I'm totally fine and I'm happy to manipulate them, but I'm going to use that to get inside and I'm going to ruin it from the inside out. Burn it all down. Burn it to the fucking ground. Well, like especially like what's fun to think about that is that presumably the Adams family are homeschooled. Mm-hmm. We don't see them go to school, mm-hmm. which means like she has really great education from her parents because she's not learning all of the wrong things from public schools like these kids. Yeah. And her and her speech, I think, is absolutely incredible. You have taken the land which is rightfully ours. Years from now, my people will be forced to live in mobile homes on reservations. Your people will wear cardigans and drink highballs. We will sell our bracelets by the roadsides. You will play golf and enjoy hot hors d'oeuvres. My people will have pain and degradation. Your people will have stick shifts. The gods of my tribe have spoken. They have said, do not trust the pilgrims, especially Sarah Miller. Gary, she's changing the words. And for all these reasons, I've decided to scalp you. 
and burn your village to the ground. Because I can only speak for myself, but seeing this as like, I don't know, a five, six year old, this was the first time that I realized, huh, Thanksgiving might not have been like a good thing for mm. everyone. Like, I don't think it was this wonderful moment of community. What's that about? Because school was definitely not tel telling us about this until about like fifth grade. Mm -hmm. That's when they suddenly were like, all right, so all that stuff you learned for years, it's bullshit. Yeah. It was actually really shitty and we killed people. And it's like, oh. Yeah. But there's like a good 10 years of your life where you don't know that stuff. But the Adams family sure taught me that. Oh, of course. Like, this was my first dose of it as a kid. The second dose would come from the Thanksgiving episodes of King of the Hill years later. Where it'd be like, John Redcorn, uh, do your people celebrate Thanksgiving? He goes, we did. Once. Great joke. <laughs> I'm like, duh. <laughs> um, I don't know. Like, especially because there's like so little Thanksgiving media that this this is really just like a dose of a side plot in this movie. And yet it's such a central part of it. Mm -hmm. um, I remember one year growing up, my mom was really insistent on, we're not going to watch TV this Thanksgiving. We're going to spend time together as a family. I've but been with she, your family on Thanksgiving. No one talks. That's impossible. Correct. Well, Thanksgiving, this, this was, it was at home. We were going to be doing it at our house this time. Okay. But like she tried, she didn't want to say no TV. She tried to be like festive about it and slick and was like, um, we're only going to watch things if they're Thanksgiving related. Which because there's, there's not a because lot. Because there's like nothing. And then Cartoon Network happened to be showing a cartoon. I don't know what it was called. It was probably called like the first Thanksgiving or something like that. And I was like, mom, I found this thing. I'm like maybe seven years old. And I'm like, mom, I found a thing. We can watch it as a family. She goes, I'm not doing that. We're busy. <laughs> and I was like, oh, okay. But I promise you that version of Thanksgiving quite a bit more wholesome than this version of Thanksgiving, <laughs> which when you think of like the Thanksgiving movies I have, there's planes, trains and automobiles, which I wasn't watching yet. That cartoon and this. Yeah. <laughs> there's and then jack the, shit. Yeah. There's like a couple horror movies. There's obviously Charlie Brown. Uh, there's, Blood Rage, which is just unwatchable trash. Yeah, there's, you know, luckily now, like, there's, like, a Bob's Burgers episode every single year. Oh, yeah, no, and they're all lovely. they're all great. You could marathon those and kill, like, seven hours now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of great stuff. Um, but, yeah, there's not a lot of Thanksgiving media, and I think it's because people don't know how to handle it. Well, I, I think, aside from just, like, the politicalness of it, it just gets lost between... The two bigger holidays, of, yeah. Ho of that, that's Halloween really and the Christmas. That's yeah. really the biggest example, but there's a lot of smaller reasons. Yeah, definitely. So this existing is like kind of a huge deal mm -hmm. um, because it is a great way to radicalize young kids, and it's a great entry point to be like, well, what is this about? I also um, think that like, and you know, obviously this is just two white people talking about it. I feel like it's taking what you expect out of like kids wearing feathers and stuff like that at summer camps that are named after native American tribes. Mm -hmm. It's using race to a point. It's, yeah. it's making a point out of it rather than it just being like set dressing. Cause it's like, this is what you wear. It's, you know, you're just, you're just having fun at summer camp, mm -hmm. you know? Oh, well I'm a red feather. Mm -hmm. This is actually being like, what if we take this thing and actually do something with it? Mm hmm. And it's important to also identify that obviously, like, if somebody is indigenous, they learned about Thanksgiving and the truths of it oh. way before white kids did. Oh, of course. Way before the general public did. Um, so we're obviously speaking in generalities the, here. The majority of people in America and our school system and how Correct. the founding of our country is very muddy. Yeah. Cor Fuck Christopher Columbus. <laughs> Fuck Christopher Columbus. Um, 
Yeah. So like, this is why stuff like this is important is like, is this scene for, you know, the people who already know this information? Absolutely not. This is for the people who have been drawing turkey hand pictures every year, the, you know, couple days before Thanksgiving break at school Mm -hmm. and learning about how, well, we learned about maize and corn because of the Native Americans. Squanto was our friend. And it's like, what the fuck? And it's like, that's not how this happened. Um, so like, that's a very, very important thing to include in. And like, I honestly can't believe they got away with it personally, uh-huh. because I, I'm shocked that some fucking exec wasn't like, well, mm, like you couldn't, it was a better time. You couldn't make this movie today. Like that scene could not exist today. You couldn't make a lot of things in this movie. So many people would cut so many things from it that make it great. Yeah, because people would freak the fuck out because they would be. There's so many suicide jokes in this movie. There's so many murder jokes in this movie. They would be so worried about like the fucking psychos at like one million moms starting like an online boycott. Because if there is one bad thing that has come out of the Internet, it's this idea that everybody's voice has equal value. Not true. Some people are dumb as shit. Mm-hmm. People like One Million Moms, dumb as shit. Should not be given platforms, should not be given microphones. It's also not One Million Moms. It's like maybe 15,000. It's not even that. It's, it's like less a than very that. small number, it's but like calling yourself. Yeah. Calling yourself One Million Moms, though, gives makes it seem like you're quite a bit bigger of a force. Yeah. They fucking suck. And I can't wait for the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade to have two non binary Broadway singers sing and make them all shit their fucking pants. Like, oh, I can't stand them. They're the <laughs> worst. I'll get off that soapbox. Never. Yeah. <laughs> but, um,. Yeah, Wednesday is also navigating her first love in this in this whole situation. I love Joel as a character so much because I love nothing more than a boy who is down bad for a creepy girl. That's really what it comes to like with the the the, this, the whole Adams family is it's like they like powerful women and mm-hmm. they are such wife guys. Oh my god, like you, every... got, you marry into that family, it's like yes. that's just the kind of man you got to be. Yes, that is the that is the Adams way of like the women are all in positions of power and all of the men are like doing everything they can to worship them. You see it with Fester, with Debbie. You're seeing it with Joel, with Wednesday. And like, he was like, I'll do anything to be with you. And she's like, I'll scare him to death. And he's like, all right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like he says, no, I would wouldn't. murder my husband. He's like, uh, oh, okay. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> but he's so down bad for her. And I love it because I love people who admit that they like the creepy girl because here's the secret that we talk about on the show all the time. All men like the creepy girl. They all do. That the jockeyest, most Republican, angrily typing on his keyboard, blue hairs and pronouns, he wants to fuck the shit out of that girl. But he'll never tell anyone he wants to. Joel, he's letting that freak flag fly. He Mm -hmm. is like, this is my shit. This goth girl, I am all about this life. Hell yeah, Joel, you're the best. I mean, they're both. I I think something that's compelling to each other is that aside from the fact that they're like, you know, trauma bonding over being forced to be at the summer camp, (laughs) aside from that, um, I think that they like each other because there are things that they respect in each other, but also that they are the opposite of their parents in a lot of respects. I think so, too. And I love at the end when, you know, they're all spending time at the Adams house and Joel looks like Gomez. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I think it's so cute. Everyone wants to look like Gomez. The baby should look like Gomez. I know. Joel should look like Gomez. Yeah, when Pubert turns into like normal baby and has blonde hair, because also that baby is played by a set of twin girls, which Mm -hmm. I think is just very sweet. I Um, mean, the the joke I made here and I'm like, man, you ready for a joke that has probably been made about a billion times because it's not clever. And it's like, is it a boy? Is it a girl? No, it's a secret third thing. 
It's, it's an, an Adams. <laughs> I was like, uh. Yeah, I love it so very much. But like this is like the Adams family is also about like unconditional love because even when the baby is like blonde hair, they're like, it's fine. We love this baby. We're going to read you the cat in the hat. And this is not exactly what we imagined for you, but okay. I know. They're just affirming their sweet baby. And I think that it's so sweet. He might be a orthodontist. <laughs> the president. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh. <laughs> oh God! Bless Raúl Julia's reactions in this whole movie, especially his eyes bugging out of his head. His, his his health was on a decline over the course of I making know. this film, and it's so fucking sad. But he is still giving it more than one hundred and ten percent. Like he is incredible. Like the way that he is just losing his mind, yelling at cop Nathan Lane about how the world's gone mad. Mm-hmm. I demand justice. Someone has married my brother. No. She took him to Hawaii. Get out of here. They have moved into a large, expensive home where they make love constantly. I hate when that happens. Arrest her at once without delay. Who? Debbie, my brother's wife, the temptress of Waikiki. Who are you? What are you? Who moved the rock? Officer, you must issue a subpoena. I believe they own... Gomez, no. A Buick! Just leave. Leave quietly. Leave now. Don't make me call Ringling Brothers. Has the planet gone mad? My brother, passion's hostage. I seek justice. Denied. I shall not submit. I shall conquer. I shall rise. My name is Gomez Adams, and I have seen evil. I have seen horror. I have seen the unholy maggots which feast in the dark recesses of the human soul. There it can. I have seen all this, officer. But until today, I had never seen you. Hook'em, buck'em, cook'em. Now! No, Raul Julia is just absolutely magnificent. And I posted about this on Twitter as well. But I feel like culturally we have finally gotten to a place where we have all accepted that finding Raul Julia as Gomez Adams attractive is at the same level as Tim Curry and Dr. Frankenfurter, where it doesn't matter what gender identity you are or what your sexuality is. Like you recognize that he's hot and like you want to fuck him or be him. so good. (laughs) He's such a beaut. Yeah. Um, like, I mean, that's why they had Tim Curry come in for the third movie. Yeah, there's no one else who could have played this character other I mean, than a- Tim Curry. Apparently, Nathan Lane can play this character. Nathan Lane can play the musical theater version of Gomez just fine, and he yeah. was fantastic. Him and Bebe Newirth were just chef's kiss. The, the, the concept of Nathan Lane being so madly in love with a woman, though. It needs, he, wa- he wasn't <laughs> out yet, but <laughs> he was by the time he did the musical and it works because Gomez is just like so infatuated that like, I'm like, no, it makes sense. Mm-hmm. This, this works for me. Uh, but speaking of infatuation, I think it is time that we talk about Debbie. Debbie. Yes. Oh God. Fester is just, he's just lonely. He's just lonely. And he finds Debbie because they are looking for a nanny because I do I do actually like the nanny angle because the whole reason that they're getting the nanny is not because like, oh, no, we can't take care of our children. It's because Morticia is feeling like the Adams version of postpartum. Mm. And Gomez is like, I'm not going to let my relationship with my wife suffer. I'm going to get her help. And help is 
helping with the baby. I mean, I'm they, getting a nanny. They've got the money and it's good that they're not making their kids raise their kid. I agree completely. Um, so they get, I love the nanny interview scene though too, because you get Cynthia Nixon being a hippie. Which, I know how much you love her. <laughs> I just love Cynthia Nixon. So seeing her being here and just being very hippie energy, which is not at all what the Adams need, I think is great. Mm-hmm. Um, but That's a different kind of woo-woo. It Definitely. Um, but then we get Debbie and she is obviously replying to the ad because she knows, you know, the Adamses have money. Um, and that's just what she does is she marries rich men and she kills them and takes their money. And that's, mm-hmm. that's her happiness. But she is so incredible in this movie. Like when we talk about like the top, like comedy character actress performances, this should always be in the conversation. Yeah. No, her character work is unbelievable her commitment is so intense um which like everyone is hers is just psychotic so it stands out uh, quite starkly in contrast to the lovingness of the atoms like there's a there's a kindness there's 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 joy to what the atoms do even if they seem joyless about it like morticia and wednesday are pretty 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 level Mm -hmm. there's still a lot of love with that versus debbie who's not and she's yes. also so confident that she's not going to get caught that she just it just lets her whole plans out there. Like she rehearses in public. She goes and flirts with Tony Shalhoub with like a Hispanic accent as a sailor. Yeah, what's going on there? So it's just a thing that appears in this movie for a cup of coffee. Um, yeah, Debbie is just next level and I love her. Yeah, I love her. I think she's so funny. Um, I love after they get married, how quickly she pivots to being such a shithead. Mm-hmm. Where it's like, give me a kiss. Give me a 20. Yep. <laughs> like, I, I love her. I also think, like we said earlier, Joan Cusack is so hot in this movie. It's mm-hmm. like it's sickening. Um, but her big monologue, like her big monologue is okay. So when I was in college, there was a woman in one of my acting classes who was significantly older than the rest of all of the college students. She was like, I don't know, taking night classes or something and occasionally had to take like a class during the day. So all of us are like shithead, like 19 and 20 year olds who are taking their theater art like very seriously. And we had to do comedic monologues and all of us are looking through like all these classics and we're doing like David Sedaris stuff and blah, blah, blah. He's super problematic now. This was, you know, 10 years ago. Anyway, um, so we're like picking through these like classics and this woman shows up and she starts her monologue and she's talking about like killing her husbands and I'm sitting there and I'm like is this motherfucker doing Debbie's monologue from Adam's family values and I realize that she is and no one else in the room knows what's happening and I'm like getting really giddy in my chair and I'm getting very excited and she gets to the line where she goes graceful delicate and like really sells it and you would think I was watching a wrestling match like Mm -hmm. I'm just like nodding my head like yeah yeah you did it and so the monologue is over and she like you know says her her exit and she comes over to me and she's like girl you knew what I was doing and I was like fuck yeah I knew what you were doing and I was like so excited and everyone in our class is like I don't know what that's from what is that from what play is that and we both just go Adam's family value (laughs) like so deadpan Mm -hmm. and our teacher was like I've never heard that monologue before I've never seen that movie and we were like you gotta see it it's so good and that monologue is why we were then allowed to bring in monologues from movies for audition pieces as long as like nobody knew what it was from which is why I auditioned for things with the why I hate Christmas speech from gremlins because none of my professors knew what it was from 
You're a psycho. I love you. It was great. It was so fun. <laughs> but like she committed so hard. Everyone was like dying. They're like, she's so funny. What is that from? What play is this? And I'm like, fucking Adam's Family Values. But it was great. It's a stellar fucking monologue. It is. And I have no idea what that woman's name was. Like I, no, not a clue. But like that memory is just like part. That That is a core memory as uh-huh. the kids call it. Oh, it's so good. I just, Debbie is so fucking funny. Um, there's really not much to say other than just how great like it's one of those things where it's like just look at her just look look at her look at her go look at her go (laughs) that's really it (laughs) and it is one of those performances where I get increasingly frustrated that we didn't let Joan Cusack be like a huge comedy superstar Mm -hmm. I think like people didn't know what to do with her and it's a it's a shame because she's so funny and she's so beautiful I mean she's great in this she's equally as good in a different kind of way in School of Rock I love her in School of Rock so much Joan Cusack could always go Mm mm-hmm I agree. And I mean, she, the, she she's, still can go like we we all love yeah. Joan Cusack still. But like Joan Cusack as like a lady who can get it as mm-hmm. like a romantic lead. Yes. Like Joan Cusack is so funny and such a good comedic foil to people, like especially chubby guys, apparently. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. So so important question about this movie then, BJ. Is Fester your favorite fat suit? Okay, so you asked me I this. Asked that, I asked it during the movie yesterday. <laughs> yes. We'll see if you've had some time to ponder this. Okay, so I, yes, I was thinking about the Fester fat suit in this, and I have two feelings. One, my favorite fat suit of all time is and will forever be Ryan Reynolds in Just Friends because it is so I shitty. Because it's such a bad fat suit that it like stops living in the real world where I'm like, this is offensive and Bless goes into like, chin. no, we're in cartoon land. Like this is <laughs> this is not real. And the way that he says, oh my God, and leans into the double chin is one of the funniest things I've ever seen in my life. Mm-hmm. So I don't His body's care. more built like the fucking turtle guy from Master of Disguise. It's like, why are you so solid looking? <laughs> Yeah, so so you know the Ryan Reynolds one is still my favorite in terms of like it's shitty, but in terms of like how I feel about the Fester fat suit, would I have preferred a fat actor to play this role? Yes. Am I upset about it? No. And the reason I'm not upset about it is because I do know that Christopher Lloyd did put on like a little bit of weight so that he could have a proper double chin. Well, it's because he's always been very gaunt. Yes, because he's he's a very gaunt man. Um, but he also is wearing this fat suit, but then also wearing Fester's clothes, which is essentially like a, a, I don't know a tent. Like mm-hmm. I don't know what else to describe it. So he isn't shaped like a real human being. He's shaped like a cartoon. He's drawing. like shaped like a ball. Yeah, like, and that's how Fester is has always been drawn. Is he's just kind of like a half circle with a head, like. Mm-hmm. So because of that, like, there are not human beings that are shaped like this, so it doesn't bother me. And Christopher Lloyd's character work is so beyond incredible because at no point do I feel like Christopher Lloyd is playing a fat character. He's playing Uncle Fester, a character who happens to be fat. Yes. Versus other people in fat suits, they are very much like trying to play fat characters. It's not really a part of his character. No, it really isn't. Like it really isn't. Like the only time what he happens to look like. The only time that it's even remotely like quote unquote part of his character is when Debbie gives him the makeover and he has that horrible like coconut head Mm -hmm. wig and that awful like Miami Vice suit that doesn't fit right. The turtleneck. And he and his (laughs) issue is not like, oh I'm uncomfortable because I'm too big. His issue is like this is not my aesthetic. Yeah. And And you were like, man, the crotch on those pants are so low. They're so low. (laughs) The crotch on those pants go to his fucking kneecaps. Um so like I think it's just like a 
very different handling because a lot of times when actors put on fat suits, they also internalize like, oh, well, how, would, how would a fat person walk? Oh, I bet they have a lot of sadness in their back. Mm-hmm. And like, he doesn't He's do that. He's so animated. He's so fucking animated. It's like, no, that's how I exist this- in the world is I'm a fat person and I'm also a cartoon. Yeah. Like, I especially love thinking about that because this is the movie that I think changes the trajectory of Christopher Lloyd's career for the rest of his career, certainly for the rest of the 90s, where he just starts to do these like kind of bad family movies. Hey, Dennis the Menace is great. He's great in <laughs> Dennis the Menace as like that gross grifter. Mm-hmm. Like he's, he's disgusting. He's so gross in he's that He's disgusting. Movie. I he's love marvelous. Him. The Dennis the Menace movie is shockingly funny, but I'm, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking like... My favorite Martian, mm-hmm. or like Angels in the Outfield. Mm-hmm. That that's a little more of the direction that Christopher Lloyd's career goes after Adam's Family. Yeah, because I think you could make the argument that like it started with Back to the Future, but I also think that movie was just so overwhelmingly popular with people of all ages. And it wasn't movie, for like young young people. Yeah, and this movie I think really like nerfed him down to like this is somebody who kids are really into mm-hmm. because he also becomes an, a recognizable figure because of this movie yeah um which i think is very cool like i love the idea of kids like knowing raul julia like that God, or, or, or like kids knowing angelica houston and of course the the running gag of her being lit like Bella Lugosi and Dracula is still one of the funniest things. Just like, the commitment. Oh my God. It's so funny. It's such a great bit. <laughs> I love, I love that so much. I, I mean, we're also forgetting Christopher Lloyd's uh, spectacular performance in suburban commando. <laughs> Cause God damn it. <laughs> I mean, he also did like a lot of voiceover work too. He like, did. yeah, he's, he would he's eventually a lot. do a uh, King Graham in the King's quest as a very, very old man. Mm-hmm. And I think that that is just, touches my heart. Yeah, I know. He's so good. I love him. I mean, we also have Carol Kane in this movie because it's Carol Kane's great. grandma. Oh my God. I love you, Carol Kane forever and always. Amen. What about Debbie? <laughs> what about Debbie? Oh God. I love her so much. And also Lurch. Lurch uh, is still kicking around. Mike Flanagan's giving him work. Mm-hmm. Good. Love to see it. Love to see it. I got really emotional in Dr. Sleep when, spoiler alert for a movie that's really old and you should have seen it by now. Really old. It was like five years ago. Still, you should have seen it's it by now. It's not like it's Soylent Green. Anyway, <laughs> anyway, spoiler alert, he dies in that movie and I get really upset about it because yeah. it doesn't feel like I'm just watching this character die. I'm like, this Lurch, no. And I get really upset. Yeah. I love him so much. Carol... Struken or maybe striken. I don't know how to pronounce Lurch's last name, but when he's Lurch, he's Lurch. <laughs> but yeah, his, his real name is Carol Striken. Um, but th- there's just so many great people in this. Like Dana Ivy shows up because you know she marries obviously cousin It. Mm-hmm. Um, so she's there for a, a quick bit. A lot of people might not know this, but cousin It is um played by John Franklin, mm-hmm. who most people know as. Isaac from Children of the Corn. Yeah. Um, that's who's under all that hair. Isn't uh, <laughs> isn't Pubert one of the Rugrats or something? Like the voice? Yeah. So the voice of um, Pubert, like the the giggling or whatever, is Cheryl, is Cheryl Chase, who's Angelic Pickles. Gotcha. Um, so that's why if you're like, that baby voice sounds familiar, that's why. Uh-huh. Um, so like, you know, th- 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 we've got that going on here. Um, obviously, we didn't, like we talked about the camp, but we didn't talk about the fact that um Christine Baranski Christine speak, fucking Baranski speaking of people like 
who are stupid hot and really funny. Yeah, I mean, Christine Baranski's a fucking, she, she's a master of, of her craft. She's the hottest who in Whoville. Oh my God. Uh, somehow her hottest role. St- I will never understand exactly how Ooh, that ended the up working muscles. out. Muscles. She's how amazing. How dare you, Christine Baranski? Her in this movie, <laughs> I've never seen someone who I think is so hot in most movies be so sexless. I know. <laughs> her her and Peter McNichol, because, you know, Becky and Gary Granger, like the way that Christine Bransky, like when they show her in her like horrible pigtails. Like, pigtails. Oh my God. Because that is such a thing that adults at like summer camps do where they like put their hair like in very youthful pigtails. And you're like, mm-hmm. what are you doing? Yeah, it's. Oh, it's so wild because it's like, I I know what you look like, Christine Bransky. You're a babe. You're so hot. And in this, oh, I hate you so much, uh-huh. which is how you know she's brilliant because she's doing exactly what she's supposed to do. She's incredible. Um, there's that one dad who always pops up as the dad and things because he's the, he's the stuffy car salesman dad type. Yeah, that's Sam McMurray. Sure. Uh, he plays like one character, and he's in so many movies doing that one character. Yeah, he's also, you know, uh, Lester Lehman from uh, Lehman Furniture mm-hmm. and Drop Dead Gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's just, if, if you were to tell me this is just like a secret Hollywood in-joke, and he just plays the same character in every movie... <laughs> Where it's like it's it's like a like a like a industry thing like the Wilhelm scream where it's like what if we just cast this what this, if we just keep putting Sam McMurray as dad what if we just we give him his name his name's Jim or something it's like oh everybody loves putting Jim in their movies <laughs> that character's great we love him <laughs> I would believe that welcome to my home might we see my brother no he doesn't want to see you any of you or that why not. Because he's in love, he's wrapped in a gossamer blanket of ecstasy, and he hates your guts. But why? Because you flaunted yourselves, your great love affair. You kept him a child, I've made him a man. Let me hear this from his own lips. His lips are busy. You want to talk to these people? Debbie. Go away! That is not my brother. Sorry. You have enslaved him. You have placed Vester under some strange sexual spell. I respect that. But please, may we see him? Don't even think about it. You have gone too far. You have married Vester. You have destroyed his spirit. You have taken him from us. All that I could forgive. But Debbie... What? Pastels? Out of my house! Hit the road! And if you ever show your faces around here again, I'll have you locked up for trying to visit. Right, Fessy? Right! But in all seriousness, I think the the best way to kind of end things on this discussion is just the emphasis, once again, of the importance of the scene. Um, this is an article from Nerdist by my bud, Lindsay Romaine. It says, Wednesday Adams Thanksgiving speech reminds us about the holiday's origins. And Lindsay writes, Thanksgiving is a time for family gatherings, for excellent food, and for thoughtful celebration of the passing year. It is also about American camaraderie as we join one another at the table or on the couch, proud of our national independence and freedom. But Thanksgiving is also riddled with an uncomfortable historical truth. 
Our land was stolen from Native Americans who were forced into lives of poverty and separation so that the European influence could flourish. That is a hard thing to reconcile with, especially during the holiday season, as we surround ourselves with loved ones and comfort. And strangely enough, of all the seasonal media in the world, it is a piece of kids' home entertainment that is endured as a token of this complicated American identity. The film's most famous scene comes during the summer camp play. The Adams' children, Wednesday and Pugsley, have to participate in their chagrin. Pugsley hams it up as the Thanksgiving Day turkey. Eat me! But Wednesday, playing Pocahontas, disrupts the play to give a rousing, matter-of-fact speech about the darker side of Thanksgiving cheer. Goth girls of the 90s have a long-standing love for the droll, insensitive eldest Adams child, but this Thanksgiving speech moment laced Wednesday Adams' more visceral appeal with some biting social commentary. The scene is full of the Adams' trademark dark humor and played for laughs. Wednesday and the other kids dressed like Native Americans who happen to be the camp's offbeat kids tie up the pilgrims and set the camp on fire. But her speech still looms large as perhaps the most biting social commentary we've seen about Thanksgiving in any piece of American media, let alone a family movie. The moment has become iconic with gifts of Wednesday's words shared with fervor every Thanksgiving, but even beyond its weird girl credibility, it remains an important reminder what the holiday means, and it is especially apt to revisit as we collectively grow more culturally aware. Yeah, so like in the way that we have like, you know, some states are resisting it, but in the way that we're rebranding Columbus Day. Mm -hmm, To being Indigenous Peoples Day. Correct. I think that like the real core message of this movie and the core message of what Thanksgiving is, it's like. Yeah, just getting back together with with your favorite, your your loved ones, whether that's your actual family in the case of this movie, because like it's a whole, this movie is about how your family is fractured mm-hmm. and like the, the, the disorder that comes as a result of it. Mm-hmm. And then everything's fine once they're all together again. Mm-hmm. That's great. That's a lovely message. Mm-hmm. But, you know, even if it's just surrounding yourself with your favorite people who you're not related to by blood, mm-hmm. that's that and being thankful for that. Yeah, that that's the actual moral of what Thanksgiving should be. Yeah. I agree because yeah. the real moral of Thanksgiving is bullshit. <laughs> yeah. So like, I don't know if they planned on it doing that, but it kind of does make this more of like a whole unit of Thanksgiving and just in terms of the vibes mm-hmm. rather than just like one central scene. Mm-hmm. Though in a, in a, in a more just world, we would have gotten, you know, Raul Julia would have lived forever and would, would just outlive us all. Mm-hmm. And we would have gotten a third Adams movie and somehow we would have gone from October to November to December and we would have had a Christmas movie. God, I would have I don't it. know if they did that, but in my mind, that's the headcanon for I that. I think there's like a cartoon episode where they do, but nothing live action to my yeah. knowledge. I just, I, my, in my brain, that's the obvious trajectory. Mm-hmm. So. I think it would have been great. Would have been so cool. Well, on that note, the Adams Family Values is asking you to the prom. Totally. I, yeah, I figured. Yes. It is so funny. Like, it's so snappy. Yeah, like, it really it, is. It's, it's so farcical. It's got a million jokes. They're all really good. It's silly. It's qu- quite bold mm-hmm. in so many ways. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I love all the characters. I love all the performances. I think that this, in terms of execution of this kind of a movie, it's a masterpiece. Yeah, I agree. I think I think it's 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 a perfect film in my opinion mm-hmm. it's one of those ones where it's like is there anything i would change not really yeah um and i don't say that about a lot of movies so De- definitely wouldn't change anyone in the cast oh god they're no. all perfect the, you can't Ma- change the maybe cast. tony shalhoub or at the very least don't give him an accent yeah <laughs> okay good boy <laughs> uh, well friends thank you so much for listening whether you listen to this on the day of release when you were trying to avoid your family or if you listen to this at a later date we appreciate it nonetheless as always you can follow the show on twitter instagram and blue sky at this ends at prom you can follow me on twitter instagram blue sky tiktok at bj colangelo 
And you can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Velocitraptor or at Blue Sky at Harmony Colangelo. And as always, thank you to the Sonderbombs for allowing us to use title as our theme song. Harmony, what band is getting the prestigious recommendation of being associated with Adam's Family Values? So this year has been really interesting because I was kind of like, for, for new releases, I was like, yeah, I mean, there's stuff that I like, but there's not been any of those big, like, that's the one um, for my favorite movies of the year. And then we got to November and December, and it's like, all of my favorite movies of the year are coming out now all of a sudden. Um, that's kind of how I'm feeling about a lot of my favorite albums of this year. They're all dropping in like the very tail month and months of the year. Mm-hmm. So my uh, my recommendation for you for this week is a ska album because it's the 90s and that's just what we do. Mm-hmm. I mean, we do it in general, but especially because it's the 90s. Uh, it is Moonflower by Flying Raccoon Suit. And there are really only two kind of ska albums that sort of exist out there. There's ones that are just trying to do... 90s third waves third wave ska really really well to mixed results or there's people who are trying to do something more interesting and unique and this is one of those i think that this might be my favorite ska album of the year it's i'm pretty confident in that uh it's one of my favorite albums of the year specifically it's a very eclectic album within the genre that I love um the opening number is it, it, this is where it kind of associates with the Adams family for me because it is called uh, Vidalia and it is like a spooky New Orleans jazz song mm-hmm. and then like two tracks later Swan Song is this like lovely pop song that just feels like you're floating through the clouds like it is such a a really satisfying mix of different genres still within this genre and this is a record that I would go, if you want someone to get into ska, this is a great place to start for like modern ska. I love it. Yeah. So Flying Raccoon Suit, uh, Moonflower, definitely give that one your time. I liked them before. This is the record that made me love them. Beautiful. Alrighty. We will see you next week. And as always, save that last dance for us. Okay, bye. Bye. was a ballerina Barbie in her pretty pink tutu. My birthday. I was 10. And you know what they got me? Malibu Barbie. Malibu Barbie. The nightmare. The nerve. That's not what I wanted. That's not who I was. I was a ballerina. Graceful, delicate. They had to go. This episode was brought to you by Pod People Productions. To find more episodes of this show and others, please visit podpeople.me.